Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Josh Hanagarni couldn't be invisible if he tried. Although he wouldn't officially be diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome until his freshman year of high school, Josh was six years old and on stage in a school Thanksgiving play when he first began exhibiting symptoms. By the time he was 20, he'd reached his towering adult height of six foot seven. When, while serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, his Tourette's tics escalated to nightmarish levels. Determined to conquer his affliction, he underwent everything from quack remedies to lethargy-inducing drug regimes to Botox injections that paralyzed his vocal cords and left him voiceless for three years. Undeterred, he persevered to marry, earned a degree in library science, and at last, an eccentric autistic strongman, a former Air Force tech sergeant and guard in an Iraqi prison, taught Josh how to throttle his tics into submission through strength training. Josh Hanagarni lives and works in Salt Lake City. His book is The World's Strongest Librarian, a memoir of Tourette's faith, strength, and the power of family. And uh, he is appearing at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 o'clock. have a chance to interact with him in the Salt Lake City area. Josh Hanagarni, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Uh, so uh, we could start uh, growing up. You were you were into books, storytelling, I guess, you know, presaging your your career in, in, in library science. Uh, was this out in Nevada? I know your parents lived in Elko. You know, I was, I was born in Moab, Utah, and spent those first uh, years between birth and fourth grade between Nevada and, New, or, uh, excuse me, Utah and New Mexico. Then grew up in Nevada from fourth grade up to the point where I left through college. And yeah, no matter where I lived, books and stories were always just part of it. But Utah and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You were, you're, uh, you were raised Mormon. Yes. Uh, faith was a part of it. Family, of course. Uh, that's all in the, the subtitle of your, your memoir. Get into that as, as well. Uh, Charlotte's Web, I think, had, a, had an influence on you. Yeah, Charlotte's Web hit me pretty hard. Up, up until I read that book, all books were kind of equal, and the more pages a book had, the better the book was. But Charlotte's Web was the first one I had a really visceral reaction to, and it was because I just had an instant crush on Fern, the farmer's daughter, because of this one specific illustration from the book. And that, uh, that opened up a whole new world. Uh, tell me about your parents. You know, I could go on all day. I, I, you can't take credit for your family, but I have the best parents anybody's ever had. You know, there's, there's never been anybody better. Uh, my mom was raised uh, Mormon in a big family. Uh, Dad lived through the Depression, was a war hero, very, very hardworking, good people. My dad was raised on a, a Navajo reservation in Shiprock and was raised in an atheist family, didn't become... I uh, didn't get baptized into the LDS church until he was 19. That actually happened on Halloween Day when he was 19. Very hardworking man. Uh, started out uh, digging with a shovel in a, in a mine in Utah. Wound up going back to school and moving up in the corporate world in mining. But very kind, generous, simple people that just, just could not could not be more fortunate. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, or were you the only child? I am the oldest of four, mm-hmm. and I have two sisters and one brother. Yeah. Uh, so books are important to you, storytelling. Um, I'd imagine pretty normal childhood, uh, except that fairly early on you, you started uh, displaying symptoms of, of Tourette's syndrome, which would become quite severe. You have one of the most severe cases, I think. 
Yeah, I have a very severe case. My, I mean, my ch- if anyone has ever had an idea like childhood, it was me. And the Tourette's wasn't that big of a deal as a kid. So I, I don't feel like it was an unusual childhood. I just had a couple of extra fidgets on top of what any young boy would have. It did make certain things more challenging once I would get a little bit older because I, even though I was having the same sorts of dramas and insecurities that any young boy will have as he's hitting puberty, for example, I also was making these noises and when I wanted to fade into the background, I really couldn't because there was always something calling attention to me whether I wanted it or not. The other thing is you're you're a big guy. I'm not sure when your growth spurt was. You know, I I never thought about that until my own son was born, and he was just always the tallest. He was the tallest baby. He was the tallest two-year-old. I don't ever think I had a big growth spurt, but even pictures of me in first grade, I was by far the tallest. Hmm. Tell me about this. Uh, you're on stage in a school Thanksgiving play. Uh, that's when you first began exhibiting symptoms, six years old? As far as I know, that that's what my parents t- would tell you was the first time they noticed it. I was on a on the stage, and they said as soon as the lights came up, you really started blinking your eyes too much and kind of curling your lips around and craning your head a little bit. But they say I didn't seem to be aware of it, so I don't have any memory of that, but that's what they would tell you. Hmm. Now, uh, fast forward past a bunch of interesting stuff we'll get to. Uh, your son Max. Uh, there's a scene in the book where where you get worried about it, and it, it's it's his blinking. He's he's blinking a lot. Yeah, that's when he's I believe about two and a half or maybe three years old, and I see him have what look very much like ticks. The the symptoms of Tourette's are called ticks, and it's basically just involuntary movements and involuntary noises. And so I saw him doing this. And then the book ended, and a couple of years went by, and it honestly just went away. We really didn't notice anything else. But a few months ago, it came back, and Max Max is having what definitely look like ticks now. He's six years old. Uh, we've talked a lot about my Tourette's, but he has not yet asked about his own. Uh, we don't have a diagnosis yet. I'm not going to worry about it until he seems to be worried about it. But I'll, I will be really surprised if he doesn't have Tourette's. The, and Tourette's is, is heritable? It is. It's mm-hmm. genetic, but they don't know which gene or genes actually cause it. So that is kind of the holy grail of Tourette's research is trying to isolate that. But, I mean, my, my parents don't have Tourette's. But we knew in advance my son would have a better chance of having it because I do have it. So, yeah, we, we do know it's genetic, but that's about as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, tell me about the range of, of uh, Tourette's. The, these these ticks, I guess, manifest themselves in uh, vocalizations, uh, involuntary movements. What, what's the range of? Oh, it's it's big. It's near infinite. It, you know, particularly when you start looking at every case being different as well. So yeah, at, at its core, it's movements and noises, but that pendulum swings pretty far and wide. So, so for me. I might have 5,000 ticks in a day, and that might it might be a lot of repetitions of similar ticks, or it might be a couple of thousand different ticks. So with me, movements can be anything from blinking, to curling my nose, to stomping my foot, to scratching myself, to hitting myself, to throwing my head around. With noises, it might be 
I've, I've been on radio shows before where people have called in and said, is there a dog in the studio with you? If, if they're tuning in halfway because mm-hmm. they hear me going, or you know, stuff like that. It kind of stops when I'm talking, which is why you're not hearing a lot of it right now. Mm. But it can be yips or throat clearings or barking or whistling or, or outright screaming. I can kind of control it or deflect it into different ticks if I need to. So I won't do a lot of screaming while we're here on the phone just because that would be so obnoxious <laughs> to anyone listening. But I may that, be yeah. having more physical ticks because ah. I have to trade it for something else. Oh, while I we're on the phone, I, I see you can you, you can you can transfer it to to something else. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Uh, so uh, this manifests itself, and I guess uh, as you you're growing, it, it it gets worse. You get a diagnosis when you're in high school, I think. Yes, I was a freshman in high school. Uh, so did I, I? I guess it got to a certain point. Your parents said, "Well, let let's go to the doctor." Is that what happened? No, not really. Um, I I was a freshman in high school, and I was on the basketball team. And we were playing a game at another team's gym, and my parents had come to the game, and I actually thought that my tics stopped when I was doing something really physical. And that was one of the reasons I loved basketball was because I could kind of focus and know that I wasn't having tics. But apparently I was, because in this game, I wound up having to shoot free throws at the end of the game, and the crowd was chanting, twitch, 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 while I was shooting these free throws. So obviously it was happening. And on the way home from that game, that is when I said to my parents, I want to go see a doctor. I need to know if this is a real thing, you know, and if and if so, is there anything we can do about it? So that was the first time we really dealt with the issue because I brought it to them. Hmm. What did you what did you think? You got the diagnosis? Had you suspected that this was Tourette's? Uh, did you know about Tourette's? I, I don't remember. My, my mom had done a lot of studying about it, but the cases she read about were so extreme that to that point, she could look at me and say, well, if, if he's obviously got something, but if this I'm, what I'm reading about is Tourette's, I don't know if that's what he's got. So she talked to a lot of people on her own without making me self-conscious about it. I'd, I'd be interested to hear her answer on that. I do not actually remember when the word Tourette's came into the conversation for me, if it did prior to that doctor's visit. Hmm. And, you know, and then once I had the diagnosis, uh, it, it was kind of nice because it was just a nuisance at that point, but it really felt like it was, it was a good thing to know I've got a real thing this thing has a name. That's what I can tell people if they ask. And I just thought that would be enough to get me through. And, and it was through most of high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I would think that would be a, a relief. Uh, so uh, how did this affect your social life, relationships with other kids? You know, it didn't really do much. Uh, if, have you ever known anyone with Tourette's, Tom? I, I haven't, no. I mean, what what most people seem to say is it fades into the background pretty quickly, even Mm. when it's extreme, just because you can get accustomed to it. And that was the tough thing is when you go out in a crowd, you can't, you know, get a bullhorn and say, hey, all of you strangers here, here's what you're hearing me do. Here's why I'm doing it. Sorry it bothers you. So you, you just don't have that luxury. But in school and with relationships and people who were just going to see me every day, it wasn't that big of a deal. I could say, here's what's going on, 
and it would tend to fade into the background for them. Um, and nobody really worried about it much because it wasn't hurting me yet. It was just kind of a quirk. Hmm. Uh, tell me about your decision to go into library science. That's that's what you did in in, in college. You've ended up and, and by the way, the the book is a, is a wonderful read. Uh, a lot of humor in it, and, and a lot of that has to do with <laughs> with what life is like in the library. Oh yeah, or at least in this library. Yeah. Um, that is jumping way ahead. Uh, by that point, when I decided to start working in libraries, I really wasn't even going out in public much anymore. And it had taken me 10 years to peck away at my bachelor's degree in English just because I, I had such a hard time being out in public. But when I did finally turn that corner, I, I knew that my English degree was not going to be good for anything except getting me into more school. I was working as a substitute at a library, and they just happened to send these very honey-tongued library school recruiters into the library who got me so fired up as, you know, they said things like, you will be the steward of democracy. Doesn't that sound great? It sounded great enough. You know, I, I signed up. I went and got my master's degree. Um, I, could go, I could go on forever about why libraries are really important to me. But there were a couple of different reasons at the time why I chose to work in libraries. And one was because I am curious and I was determined to try to figure this out, that the Tourette's. And being in a library, a, a quiet library, means I'm incredibly exposed when I make noises and when I have tics. And it forces me to keep trying to figure it out. Is there anything I can do to make it better for me? Is there anything I can do to make it easier on the patrons or on my coworkers? And I would not have that same drive, I don't think, if I was working from home, if I felt somewhere safe. Libraries just happen to be one of the things that are most important to me, but they also serve as a perfect lab for Tourette's because they force me to keep asking questions about it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I, by the way, the uh, uh, Josh Hanagarney has a, a website, a blog, josh, Um And there's an interesting, and we'll get into this as we go along, interesting quote you, you have uh, displayed prominently. This is your quote. Ask what if, and then go out, uh, go find out. The answers are rarely as bad as the not knowing. You and you, uh, you try just about everything. We'll get into that story as well, and get into more of uh, uh, libraries today. Very interesting. Um, you know, a lot of us go to libraries, but we don't spend all day there. And uh, interesting uh, to get experience from, from a librarian. The book is the world's strongest librarian: a memoir of Tourette's, faith, strength, and the power of family. The author is Josh Hanegarty, who has dealt with his severe case of Tourette syndrome. Uh, his whole life got especially bad on his LDS mission. We'll get into that following break. He's at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 o'clock for book signing and, and reading opportunity for you there. We'll have more with Josh Hanegarty following this break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Sleep plays a vital role in good health and well-being throughout your life. Getting enough quality sleep at the right times can help protect your mental health, physical health, quality of life, and safety. 
During sleep, your body is working to support healthy brain function and maintain your physical health. The damage from sleep deficiency can occur in an instant, such as a car crash, or it can harm you over time. For example, ongoing sleep deficiency can raise your risk for some chronic health problems, such as heart disease, kidney disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke. To improve your sleep habits, try to be physically active every day. Go to bed and wake up at the same time every day and avoid caffeine later in the day. So here's to many long, good night sleeps, and as a result, a safer, healthier, and more enjoyable life for you and your loved ones. This is Dana for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Josh Hanagarney uh, has a severe case of Tourette syndrome. It uh, manifested itself when he was six years old. He was diagnosed in his freshman year of high school. The uh, Tourette's became especially bad when he was serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he uh, tried everything. He underwent to crack remedies, uh, drug regimes, Botox injections that paralyzed his vocal cords, left him voiceless for three years. He persevered. He married, earned a degree in library science, and at last, an eccentric, autistic strongman. A uh, former Air Force tech sergeant and guard in an Iraqi prison taught to him how to throttle his ticks into his mission through strength training. We'll get into that uh, part of the story. Uh, Josh Hanagarney lives and works in Salt Lake City. He is a librarian at the, uh, the, the main branch of the Salt Lake City Library. His book is The World's Strongest Librarian, a memoir of Tourette's, faith, strength, and the power of family. He's at the King's English Bookshop tonight for a uh, reading and signing at 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City. Josh Hanagarni with us for another about uh, 30 minutes. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like with your question or comment. Uh, two main ways to do that. Telephone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So I'd like to bring the, the story up, uh, Josh, to, to, to your LDS mission. It's interesting that uh, a thread throughout the book is is your faith, your LDS faith, and and how you're how 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 you come to terms with that. Uh, and uh, chapter headings, many chapter headings uh, use the Dewey Decimal System. Very appropriate. You're a librarian. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a story. I, I guess you maybe get this more than once. People who come <laughs> to your floor, um, and which in, I think includes religion, they want to know. Well, is this nonfiction or fiction? They're, they're kind of, I guess that indicates whether they're believers or not. Well, that has only happened a couple of times, as specifically I wrote about it in the book. But it, it is an interesting question. If you walk onto my floor and you see all of the mythology and the psychology and the religion books, I think what is the distinction between nonfiction and fiction is a question worth asking. We will all come at it through different ways, given whatever our belief systems are. But if you're someone who does not believe in any sort of supreme being or someone who who thinks all organized religion is a farce, I mean, you you certainly are not going to treat the religion section as nonfiction. You, you'd probably have to think of it as something sociological versus theological, if you can't give it any sort of divine credence. But yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it is the floor where you come to learn how to do something. But philosophy, is that nonfiction? You know, is, is religion nonfiction? That's, those are going to be subjective questions for each person to answer. By the way, parenthetically, uh, and, and 
I keep bringing this up because these are my favorite passages in the book. Uh, the, the people you meet at the library, you, you meet all sorts of people. From, from eccentrics oh, yeah. to people. I mean, with, I'm, you know, I'm very proud that we're a public library and we serve the public, and the public means everyone. And that means you don't get to choose who walks in the door, and that leads to all kinds of things. And, mm-hmm. and anybody who works with the public in any location is going to understand that. And so I guess the, the kind of the stern, current stereotype is a bit true. You have a funny passage in the book where you know the ideal is that the library is a poor man's university. The joke among librarians, I guess, is it's also the poor man's daycare, poor man's urinal, um, <laughs> people sleeping on the floor. There, There is a bit of that in today's public library. A bit. You know, and I, and I work in an urban library, you know, as, as urban as Salt Lake is. So a lot of the things I talk about that we deal with are things that would be familiar to urban libraries. But I do – I get a lot of – messages from people who say, oh, I had no idea libraries were like that, because I, I tell a lot of funny stories, and the best stories are always the bad stories. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and, and I usually say, you know, libraries are not like that, but this library is exactly like that. And I've, I've had emails from other librarians who have said, oh, there's no way it could be that weird. You're, you're lying. You're making this up. And I can tell you with total sincerity that all of the people I've worked with at this library all say, you did not go nearly far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you get from both sides. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I I mean, once you're here and you look around, you know, there are very few things you think just could never happen here. Now, a librarian's dream is is to to have someone come with interesting research questions. One that fascinated you, and, and it seems fascinating, someone came in and said, are the Hutus in Rwanda, are, are they descended from, do they have Jewish heritage? And so off you went with this person. To... Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about working here is I, I, I mean, you never know what somebody's going to ask, but they will generally ask something I have no familiarity with. My job isn't to know the answers, it's just to know where to look for them. And I think there's something very precious in that hunt, something very dear to me. And if I've done my job right, you know, not only have I helped them find something, I've learned something as well. And that's really what drives me. So uh, so back to the story, and it was me who took us off. Uh, um, you're, you're up to your decision about mission, and, and as a lot of prospective missionaries uh, do, you. I think you had a girlfriend, you had to decide... What you're, what you're going to do there, and and you had a sort of a, I don't know, a crisis of faith. You had to, had to, you wanted to get a confirmation that uh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I think so. And it's it, in retrospect, it's hard for me to parse out what might have just been typical high school melodrama and what was an existential or religious crisis. I mean, I was straining with all the capability of my young soul, but that that was definitely limited. Um, my, my mom says that we actually talked quite a bit about my doubts, and I don't remember that. I, I kind of remember thinking, I don't know where my head is in all this. I don't think I know for sure, but I don't, I don't remember ever seriously considering not going on a mission, because that was just what you did. And if you were part of a, of a ward, and you were of age, and you didn't go, that simply meant there, you know, you would kind of need an explanation. Maybe nobody would bug you about it, but everybody might wonder. I, I don't remember planning on not going, hmm. but yeah, I, I got my confirmation such as it was, which I have different ideas about now, 
and it was enough to get me out the door. So Washington, D.C., Spanish-speaking. Yes. Um, and, and this is where Tourette's just really, really hit you hard, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I'd only been out for a few months when I, I started hitting myself for the first time, and this was a big change. And this, uh, it, it was really, really scary for me, and I couldn't control it. This is when I finally started trying different medications, and nothing really worked. And so this is kind of, this was probably the first real crisis of faith I would have. Because if, if you're a missionary, and you go out, and you're working hard, um, whether you know or whether you just think you know, I knew I am actually doing the right thing. I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to. And if I got hit by a car right now, I'd go straight to heaven, and that's what I deserve. And yet, this is when the switch flipped, where while I was doing this noble work, I was suddenly in more physical pain and dealing with more fear and more hopelessness than I'd ever even come close to. And so that was that was a very tricky situation. So what other ticks that you were you were hitting yourself? What, what other ticks were manifesting themselves? I, you know, I started hitting myself and I started screaming. Those were the two big ones. Mm-hmm. This was not any more waving my hands around and clearing my throat and maybe yapping a little bit. This was screaming in public. I mean, I mean, if you can picture yourself today, go into a mall or something. Find the most crowded area you can and just walk into the middle of it and start yelling. Do it every three to four seconds and try to imagine how would I feel when everybody started looking in my direction. And then when they look, not only do they hear it, they see me. Maybe I'm hitting myself. You know, maybe I'm just waving my arms all crazily. So it was it was just a lot. It was an escalation of everything I was already dealing with. Hmm. Yeah, that's and you're in a very public setting. You're you're in a situation where you're trying to convince people to yeah. let you in the door and yeah. yeah. If you were if you were going to design a situation to torment someone with Tourette's, it might look a lot like an LDS mission mm-hmm. where the goal is go out, meet as many strangers today as you possibly can, be super reverent, don't do anything weird or you know, or weirder than what they already think you're doing. Get into their homes, ask them to change your lives, and hope they don't notice that you're yelling and barking. Wow. What did your companions think? They were just worried about me. Uh, I mean, it was it was hard. It, they, they were mainly just worried about me. And, and your mission president, did you talk to him? Yes. I, after, I went home early after a year at his encouragement, because what had happened was uh, I, I was— I was still able to make myself go out and do the work, but my body had started convulsing so badly so often I was having a hard time just keeping food in my stomach because it would all just come back up. And I I weigh about 260 right now, but when I came home, it was because I'd kind of forgotten how to eat, and I only weighed about 160 because I had lost all this weight. So that that was what got me out of there, and uh, that was what my mission president encouraged me to do. He just said... um, I remember it was very poignant, even though I have such different ideas about faith and religion now. He he said, uh, I want you to know your sacrifice has been honorable and the Lord has accepted it. And in that moment, I, I, I was so grateful and just thought, okay, then I'm going to let myself off the hook and go home and try to get well. Mm. What did you think, in, in terms of your religious faith, I could see one side of it where you would think, well, 
I'm doing the right thing, so God should heal me. Maybe. I mean, it it depends. Are, are you religious, Tom? I am. Mm-hmm. Wait, I mean, when when you believe, I think you are in a position where you're more likely to. I mean, everything looks like either a reward or a blessing or a punishment or a, a trial or an opportunity for you to be tested. And so at the time, that's how I was trying very hard to look at it is, wow, this incredibly terrible thing has happened. What is God trying to teach me? Uh, so, so yes, I had this kind of discord in my head where I'm doing this right, and yet this is happening. But I was also at the time at a point where I was most likely to interpret that as a very specific lesson meant for me. And so I was trying to learn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did your parents think? Oh, they were just heartbroken. I mean, any anytime your kids are in pain, you know, it's uh, it's mm-hmm. brutal stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that, they, that must have been bad. And it was such, it's such a weird disorder, and we did not know where it was going to go next. So it was really hard to say. Yeah, I know Tourette's, and all we got to do is ride this out for X amount of time, and then it'll go away. I mean, it was it's just weird in every way. And we had no idea when it would change or what that might look like. If you just joined us, we're talking with Josh Hanegarney. He works at the uh, main branch of the Salt Lake City Library. Uh, he uh, lives there in Salt Lake City as well. Uh, and his book is The World's Strongest Library, a memoir of Tourette's faith, strength, and the power of family. Uh, he's afflicted with a severe case of Tourette's syndrome. Uh, and we've just talked about uh, the uh, one of the worst at times. Uh, uh, it, the Tourette's manifested itself and uh, it got more severe on his LDS mission. You're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Josh, uh, you're, you get home. I guess you're obviously you're among your top goals would be I'd, I've got to deal with this. I got to try to get better. What, what did you What did you think? Did you think you could get better? I just didn't know. I, I was pretty hopeless, and and again, I mean, I uh, I believed I'd been promised certain things, you know, by by God, by the church, and I, I did believe that if I keep doing the right things, you know, I'll I'll have what I need. I'll learn what I need, but that kind of knowledge wasn't a lot of solace in the moment to moment where I thought, well. I don't know how to go to school. I don't know how to get a job. I don't know how to go outside because I can't stand to have people looking at me anymore. So I was trying to do what I could, but I wasn't able to do much or I wasn't able to make myself do much. I'm sure there are things I could have handled differently, but I didn't handle them differently. And so that was a a pretty dark time just because... I, I was trying to work towards things, but my goals were so small. They were more things like, can I go outside today? Mm. Yeah, understandable that you would withdraw yourself from, you know, from the world. If This is just uh, such a such a, um, a negative in public. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and some of it has just come with age today. If we're out in public and I do something and you stare at me, I can tell you what's going on. If you accept that, that's great. If you don't, we can have a staring contest and you'll lose. And I'm fine with that. You know, back then, I, I mean, 
if I ever say anything that sounds wise or like I have a great perspective today as a 36-year-old, if I could go back and say that to 23-year-old Josh, I still don't think it would help. Because some of this, you know, has just come with scabbing over with age. You you get tough, you care about certain things less than other things, and you get a perspective I don't think you can earn in any other way except time. So tell me what you what you tried. This is amazing. What you you it sounds like you tried everything. As far as I know, yeah, I, I we we tried every pill that you can try. Um, there's really no such thing as the Tourette's drug. It's always something that uh, is used for something like blood pressure or depression or antipsychotics that maybe it helped somebody with Tourette's. And I've known a lot of people who have had great results with medications. I was just never one of them. Uh, I mean, we really did try everything. We went to this ridiculous alternative healer in Elko who later would go to prison for a year after giving people baths in his magic cancer bath that would cure cancer, except, of course, it didn't. Um, the only thing that really worked at the time, it was it was not a good trade-off, but I started screaming to the point where I got a hernia just from the pressure of screaming ticks. And so I started getting Botox injections in my vocal cords, which was experimental, I believe, at the time. And it made it so I couldn't scream anymore. So I couldn't hurt myself in that way, and I could go out in public again. But I couldn't talk anymore either. I, I could just whisper a tiny bit. And that was that was pretty much the extent of what I tried, except my dad also started taking me to the gym to try to put some of the weight back on. And that was a pretty big shift for me because uh, what I got out of lifting at the beginning was a very small period of time each day where I felt like I was in control of my body. So you found that that was helping, at least somewhat. It, it did. It, it actually made the ticks worse generally. But afterwards, uh, I, I speak all over the country to these big groups of kids with disabilities. And the ones who always seem to be doing the best are the ones who have something they're really into that they can improve at and they can measure it. And that was the thing with, with me and the strength stuff. I, I've only realized some of this in hindsight, but there's nothing abstract about strength. It's a number. You're either stronger today than you were yesterday or you're not. And it's hard not to feel more confident when you're always getting better at something and you can measure it. Now, it might not instantly transform you into a confident person, but more confident, I think so more often than not. So do you think that's what that is, is confidence? You say it doesn't have to be strength training, just something that you're that you're into, that you're improving at measurably. Maybe. I, I'm a, I, I do not like the self-improvement industry, and I don't like people who make promises and say, I know exactly what you should be doing to be happy. What I do believe 100% is that every situation can be improved. That's it. Hmm. And I think if you have something you like that you can get better at, you at least have something to look at and measure and reevaluate and to see if it helps. Hmm. For me, that was the strength. That's that's just kind of what I latched yeah. on to. Yeah. The book is The World's Strongest Librarian, a memoir of Tourette's faith, strength, and the power of family. Josh Hanegarney is with us for another 15 minutes. Uh, he is a librarian at the uh, main branch of the Salt Lake City Library. Uh, he is at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 o'clock for a reading and signing. You can uh, see him there and uh, 
Glad you've joined us for this conversation. Very interesting book, interesting journey. Josh Hanagarney is on, and he's written about it in The World's Strongest Librarian. We'll get to, to this uh, this mentor, I guess you could, you could call him, an eccentric, autistic, strongman, former Air Force tech sergeant who taught Josh how to throttle his ticks through strength training. That part of the story following this break. Beginning in May, tune into Utah Public Radio during Morning Edition for Hidden Kitchens, a series on the food, folklore, and culture that creates community around the world, from Sicilian farms to the Australian outback. From the Kitchen Sisters production team, Tuesday mornings in May on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Josh Hanagarney. He is the world's strongest librarian. That's the title, in any case, of his book. Subtitle is A Memoir of Tourette's, Faith, Strength, and the Power of Family. He lives and works in Salt Lake City. And he'll be reading and signing his book tonight at the King's English Bookshop. That's at 7 o'clock. Opportunity for you to interact with Josh Hanagarney. Uh, He has a very severe case of Tourette's. He tried everything. Botox injections, paralyzed his vocal cords, quack remedies, drug regimes, uh, he persevered, married, earned a degree of library science, and at last an eccentric autistic strongman, former Air Force tech sergeant and guard at an Iraqi prison, taught him how to throttle his ticks into submission through strength training. So, Josh, you'd already gotten into exercise and, and, and some strength stuff. How, how did you find uh, this fellow? I think his name is Adam? Yeah, his name is Adam T. Glass. It's very important to him to put the T in there. So, Adam T. Glass. Uh, yeah, what what happened was... The the harder things got, the more important lifting started to get to me, and I always needed to be able to make progress in these areas. Now, the problem there was um, I'm always injured in different ways because of the tics I have. So if I was to fall in love with three particular exercises, I mean, I'm going to have more days more often than not, where I just can't do those exercises because I'm hurt. You know, I've hurt my leg. I've hurt my shoulder with a tick. So I started looking for more and more areas of fitness, more and more different types of strength, so that every day when I tried to figure out what I could do without pain, I would have a direction I could go in. And I was trying to learn everything I could from these people online, just looking for teachers. And you start running into the same people over and over. And I started running into this weird little group on different websites who said they did what was called old-time strongman training. And that's kind of... If you if you think of the turn of the century vaudeville circus where there's they have the strong man, he's probably in a leopard skin, he's bending something or he's lifting those big round dumbbells. These kind of guys were still out there, and Adam was one of these guys, and he could do stuff like bend wrenches with his hands and lift 500 pounds on one finger and uh, tear decks of cards in half and all this stuff. And the reason I I went up to train with Adam was because I couldn't figure out how to even start working on any of this stuff on my own. It looked fun. That's all I really wanted. It just looked fun. But 
when you see somebody bench pressing, you can probably figure out how to do that or work on it on your own. If you see somebody tearing something and you try to tear it like a phone book and it doesn't happen, it's really hard to know where to start working on it. So I went up to train with Adam for a week uh, at an Air Force base in Minot, North Dakota. Adam would later tell me he had sustained a brain injury during a prison riot in Iraq. And at that time, that because of this injury, that is when he started testing highly on the autism spectrum. Now, I do not, Adam does not offer a lot of information. So I, I try to be careful saying, here's what he told me. This, is, this would explain a lot of how he is to me. If it's, if it's legitimate, which I have no reason to think it's not. And because of the way Adam's mind worked, he, he had some very particular fixations with movements. And so he didn't give me a lot of answers, but he would say things to me like, what would it mean if that tick you had was simply an unskilled movement? What might change if you tried to make it a skilled movement or introduce an element of skill into it that you could practice? And then when I would say, what are you talking about? He'd just kind of smile, and he wouldn't tell me anything else. So I wound up having a bunch of experiments to try, things related to breathing, things related to the, the lights in different rooms, things like the speed at which I would have ticks if I could control it. And long story short... Uh, that led to me having a year off with almost no ticks. I mean, nothing. So it's been very bittersweet because when I sold this book, it was a book about how I had cured myself of Tourette's and how I was going to try to replicate it with other people because I really thought that was true. And when I was writing the book, after I'd sold it, it all roared back. And today is far worse at 36 than it ever was during any time of the book because the things that were working stopped working. But that is what took me to Adam originally. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it roared back, that's uh, got to be depressing. Oh, it's uh, hideous. Yeah. It's, it's worse every day. You know, my, my approach to it is still the same. I don't curl up into a ball and mope very often. But it's it's not good. Hmm. At some point, you you discovered Highland Games. Yeah, that was just Tell kind me of about a freak that. thing. I mean, Utah's got a big throwing culture. Uh, when, when Dan John was down at uh, Utah State University teaching discus, I mean, Dan was enough of a name that suddenly all these people wanted to throw. And you can always just find a group somewhere doing Highland games. And again, I just thought it looked fun. And I went and did it. I, I think it was up in Payson the first time I did it. And if you don't know the Highland Games, it's the Scottish heavy athletics. It's just people throwing logs and hammers and stones either for height or for distance. A lot of fun. Hmm. So since uh, strength training isn't working the way it was, you're still into strength training? Well, but, but keep in mind, yeah, I mean, I still do it. It, it always made the ticks worse. It always did. Oh, oh I see. Does. Okay. It yeah. just gave me, I still get the same thing out of it that yeah. I always did. Mm -hmm. But that is simply a brief feeling of control and something I can measure. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can always say, well, at least I'm a little stronger today than I was yesterday. That I'm a lifer as far as lifting. I'll never be able to stop that because it is still what holds everything else together for me. But that is because, in, I believe, 
that's the thing I, I can measure. You yeah. know, it, yeah. it also means I can do some cool things and I look big and I, I look fit. But at the bottom of it, it's just that it's it's where I can always make progress when nothing else is working. Yeah. Uh, there's a funny passage in the book where uh, you, someone wants to confront you in the library. You you handled it by looming. You say you're good at looming. Um, <laughs> well, I am tall. Um, <laughs> For any of you tall guys out there, don't start thinking you're tough just because you're tall. But I've spent enough time working with people like Adam now that I actually know I am I am tough and I'm tall. Right. Um, but that's never going to result in me touching anyone at the library right. and winding right. up in jail. It would just yeah. be ludicrous. Right, right. Um, I wonder. You, you had this this time of hope that you know maybe you'd you'd uh, overcome your Tourette's. I wonder, looking through through the eyes of a parent, and, and, and now you're seeing your son display some some ticks. Now that Tourette's has come back with a vengeance for you, what uh, what are your thoughts about your son? Well, I, I think most parents will agree that when something goes, I mean, not wrong, but when you have a concern or your child has a struggle, it's very easy to get into worst case scenario mode. So for me, nobody knows better than me that if Max has Tourette's, it is very unlikely he'll have a case like mine. It'll be its own thing and probably quite mild compared to mine. Mm -hmm. But when I can't sleep or when I can tell it's bothering him, I mean, I'm immediately picturing my own case. He's going to have the broken teeth. He's going to be the one dislocating his thumbs. He's going to be the one who screams till he's got a hernia. It's very easy to blame yourself for your child's struggles. And it, uh, and there's a whole new level of that for me when it actually is a genetic condition. And I can look at that in him and say, that came from me. Mm-hmm. And I try not to dwell on that a lot. I'm going to try to help him the same way my parents helped me. And just, I, I mean, one of the greatest things I've ever heard anybody say about Tourette's is a, a BYU professor with Tourette's named Cal Crozier, who said his mom would always just say to him, okay, so what? You know, that sounds mean, but I, but I believe it. It's a, so it's harder for you sometimes. So what? What mm-hmm. are you going to do? So your body's doing this. So what? What are you going to do with that? Now, I'm not going to say that to him, I think, but that does make a lot of sense to me because all you ultimately have when things are unfair is all you can choose is how you react to it. There are a couple of passages in the book. uh, Interesting. Your your wife, I think, helps you to try not to go to the the worst case scenario, you know, and I think we're all prone to that, but it's, it's important, I think, not to do that. Yeah, everybody tries. Easier said than done, but if you can do it, I think you're you're doing yourself a favor. Yeah, uh, we just have about a minute left. Uh, what do you you go out and, and and talk to kids? You do presentations and, and such. What do you what do you tell people, especially kids with with Tourette's? Well, I, I tell them get better at whatever you can get good at. I tell them stay close to your families and your friends. They're the ones who are going to help you get through this. And I also am very careful to say, I don't think anyone has promised us anything fair. And every situation can be improved. I think it's okay to say it's hard. I think it's okay to say this is making me miserable. But that the goal should be, don't spend any more time saying those things than possible. Try to reduce the frequency of the pity parties. And just do whatever you can do. Try to make things a little better. And maybe that'll help. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, we're out of time. Uh, Josh Hanagarney uh, has written a very interesting book. It's The World's Strongest Librarian, a memoir of Tourette's faith, strength, and the power of family. It's on the UPR book list, uh, recommended by the booksellers. And in fact, uh, Josh Hanagarney is uh, at the King's English Bookshop tonight for a book signing and reading. Uh, Josh, very interesting book, uh, a great read. I highly recommend it, and thanks so much for being on with us. Oh, my, my pleasure. And any of you, please come say hi to me at the library. Uh, very good. Yeah, you're at the main library, at uh, the Salt Lake City yep. Library. L- level yeah. 3. Level 3. Okay. Thanks so much. And, yep, take uh, care, everyone. For uh, producers Elizabeth Gee and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Sisters Susan Savage and Amy Jones reflect on their childhood growing up in Leeds, Utah, and the power of friendships and storytelling. We grew up in a little town, and um, we're the children of the greatest generation. We grew up in Leeds, which is 14 miles north of St. George, and uh, when we were growing up, we had no television, and so we had a lot more acquaintance and uh, rubbed shoulders daily with the people we lived close to. We had space around us, and were able to have animals and closer relationships with neighbors, children out playing ball in the streets, that sort of thing, which was nice, which was wonderful. I loved that. And I have seen a change as time's gone on. I'm nostalgic for those old days. We were fortunate to have, as our parents, their personalities directing our lives because Mom was such an outgoing person. But she was just so thrilled with everything around her, and she conveyed that to us. Sometimes she was more thrilled than we were, (laughs) don't you think? (laughs) She used to say to us, make your eyes shine. Right. (laughs) And she always wanted us to speak to uh, speak to people, even when we didn't feel like it. She arranged for us to pin curl the elderly ladies here in town, and and uh, we were just always relating with people around us. Mom and Dad, they they brought quite a variety of people, uh, kind of outliers sometimes. That's true. They were not only tolerant, but they welcomed differences. Mm-hmm. They they relished that. They did, and I think I think Mom was a leader in that, maybe just because Dad was quieter. But he, he did have acquaintance with a, a variety of people with a variety of backgrounds. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about that. Mom didn't turn anyone away, did she? No, she went out looking for them. She did. She went out looking for hitchhikers. <laughs> we we had to counsel her as she got older that <laughs> the world was changing and uh, she couldn't just stop and pick people up on the road mm-hmm. because she she was so trusting and but we always had our house full, didn't we? We did. Do you remember people coming off the highway with car trouble? They were always overheating their cars as they drove across the desert. Do you remember any of those? Experiences? I do. I remember they had car trouble, and Mom invited them in, and they had to sleep on the living room floor. Weren't they medical students from the University they were. of Utah? And year, years later, when I was in a circle at a wedding reception, people were introducing themselves, and when I said my name, he said, "Oh my word, we slept on your floor when we were going to medical school." <laughs> <laughs> on our floor, that uh, <laughs> it was a very pleasurable thing for her to have our house full of people and. And we had such fun and always told stories and talked. We were always talking because there wasn't a television to watch, and we entertained each other. 
remember what a wonderful storyteller Dad was. Mm-hmm. My daughter has said, I just would get so anxious when Grandpa would tell a story because he'd get right to the most exciting part and then he'd take a bite <laughs> and we'd have to wait for him to tell the rest of the story. So they developed a, an anticipation for the movement of a story and how it was going to end. And they are good storytellers. They are good storytellers, <laughs> especially our boys. Yeah. You've got to tell the story of the out at uh, Anderson's Junction. He would go out peddling. People peddled their fruit, and his, he would go to, to the ladies' houses in the different communities. The ladies would come out, and they'd say, Oh, these peaches are so small. And he'd say, Yes, ma'am, they are very small, but many of them weigh a pound. <laughs> <laughs> The interestingly enough, remember, we never got tired of hearing these over and over again. We all laughed just as much. Yes, and said, tell it again. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. On the next Humankind, author and Buddhist meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg discusses a practice known as loving-kindness, which enables people to see others and themselves with more compassion. Also, a visit to Lawrence, Kansas, where John Hyder, who wrote The Tao of Leadership, describes the enduring wisdom of Lao Tzu. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Tonight at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden. It is now 10 o'clock.